Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be in uh, Hebrews 11 this summer, and in the fall we're going to look at Hebrews 12, and then in the spring we'll finish the book with the 13th chapter of Hebrews. Let me pray, and then we'll dive into Hebrews 11 verses 1 to 5. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to come together as your people and do what the saints have always done, come together to worship you, to sing your praises, in those words to uh, confess our faith to you, our trust in you, our joy in you. But also, Lord, we come together to hear from you. And Lord, we know based upon our natures that as if we look within for truth, we're really in trouble because we can justify all sorts of wickedness. We can uh, self-deceive ourselves. And uh, so, Lord, we need something outside of ourselves. We need your word. Lord, thank you for your word that you've communicated to us. And Lord, even for this passage, that you have communicated what faith is and then given us these glorious examples of what faith and faithfulness should look like. Lord, I pray that we would uh, hang with this concept of faith as we do a deep dive, really reflecting on, okay, what is faith? What is commendable faith from your perspective? And I pray that we would be marked by faithfulness. Lord, to that end, we ask for your spirit to come, to do the ministry that only he can do, to convict us of areas where we're not faithful, to give us eyes to see where we're not faithful and and that we should be faithful and how we can be faithful. Lord, do that work. Send your spirit. And finally, Lord, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, civil religion is dead in this country. And what I mean by that is Americans are losing our faith. Over the past 22 years, from the year 2000, there's really been some dramatic shifts in the religion in our country. You've probably heard some of these stats. Maybe some of these shifts won't surprise you. you you're living in it. But let me just throw some stats at you. Uh, Gallup reports that uh, about 75% of Americans view themselves as religious. And and within that group, about 70% of those folks uh, claim Christianity is their religion. Now, within that number, getting a little more uh, tighter here, about 35% of those people uh, claim to be Protestants, 22% claim to be Roman Catholics, um, and then there's kind of a litany of, of other options there. And further, about half of Americans claim that religion is very important to them. Now, to some uh, by some standards and by some comparisons to other countries, those are really good and, and high numbers. However, there's also been uh, some really dramatic shifts in the last 22 years. There's been some major declines, first off, in church attendance. In, in the 1950s, half of Americans regularly attended church. And, and even by the year 2000, about 45% of Americans regularly attended a church. However, today, it's only about 30%. Of Americans. Further, church membership has also dramatically declined. So when Gallup first started uh, tracking that statistic, it was in the 1930s. And in the 1930s, about 75% of Americans claimed some sort of church or synagogue or mosque affiliation. Of course, most of those were, were churches, not mosque or, um, um, or synagogues. But about 75% of Americans claimed to be connected to a particular church or a member of a church. 
And that number probably kind of stayed about the same really since the founding of our country, since the 1700s. And even in the year 2000, about 70% of Americans claimed or identified membership in a local church. However, over these past 22 years, that number has now for the first time dipped under half. So less than half of Americans identify with a particular uh, church or a membership in a church. You've seen statistics like this. I've referenced statistics like this. But my point in doing it today is just to talk about that that civil religion or that nominal faith, all of that is dead. It's been shown to be, it's been shown to be weak. It's been shown to really be a failure. But, but hear me, I, I think there's some bad things that come from statistics like that. Like I think a, a civil religion, I think it can kind of help with like social order, which I think is a good thing. I think there uh, are things that were good from that, and, and if that civil religion is disappearing, I think there can be negative things that come from that. However, I, I don't think the sky is falling from that either, because I think embedded in those numbers is that in that civil religion, it was also filled with a lot of hypocrisy, right? A lot of people claiming to be a Christian, but yet their life didn't look like it at all, and then it confused the people around them. Is that really what a Christian is supposed to look like? So I think what has happened in this country is that nominal middle has just fallen away. And hopefully what is left is those real Christians really living it out, having genuine faith. Today we're talking about faith. And when you talk about religion or spirituality, you know that it's somehow connected to this idea of faith. But, but what is faith? Like, how would you define faith? And further, what's genuine faith? Like, maybe you can have sort of faith in something, but what's, like, genuine faith? And as evangelicals, we would say, okay, Genuine faith means what is saving faith? Like what's the type of faith that, that would actually lead to salvation? I think there's a conversation, particularly amongst the secular left in our country, that talks about faith as, okay, it's okay if it's a private thing. Like keep it on Sunday morning. Keep it within that purple building that you go to every Sunday. Like keep it there. But don't, but don't take it out into the public sphere. Is that saving faith? Is that genuine faith? If we just keep it private? Is that the type of faith that is commendable in the New Testament? Well, today we're returning to our study of the book of Hebrews. And if you're new with us, we've said that Hebrews is all about this problem of falling away. Even in this first generation of Christians, you had people who claimed to be a Christian, claimed to be a follower of Christ, and then they fell away for all sorts of different reasons. We see that today. The solution to falling away is really believing that Jesus is better. Whatever is tempting you to fall away, Jesus is better than whatever that is. And that's the message of Hebrews. Now, we've taken some breaks from Hebrews for a couple of reasons. It's a long book. We've done some different things uh, uh, during that time. But also, it's a really deep dive, right? And today is no different. We're going to really examine faith. And it's kind of a deep dive into the nature of faith. Today, we're looking at this, this famous Hall of Faith chapter from Hebrews 11. He's going to start with answering the question, what is faith? And then he's going to answer the question, okay, well, what does faith or faithfulness look like? And he's going to give us all these examples, and that's kind of where we're going. But we're starting today with this first verse, which is kind of a definition or an explanation of what faith is. And so he's wrestling with this topic of faith, and then he gives us all these examples of commendable faithfulness. Again, people have called it the whole of faith. These are these great, glorious examples from the Scriptures of what faithfulness looks like. So let's start in verse 1, Hebrews 11, verses 1 to 5. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, 
the convictions of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Well, again, this first verse answers the question, what is faith? And there's really kind of a two-parter to that answer. First, it's faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And second, the conviction of things not seen. When Billy Graham was asked, okay, what is faith? What's a definition of faith? He explained it this way. He said that faith simply means believing that something is true and then committing our lives to it. I I love that definition. I think it's concise. I think it's straightforward. I think it's easy to understand in a very Billy Graham fashion, right? I mean, it's something that we could totally understand. He's saying, okay, something claims to be true, and faith is believing that whatever that thing claims to be true, that that's true to the degree that then you live accordingly to it. That's his definition of faith. Hebrews 11, 1 to 3, it, it sort of provides a definition of faith, but I, I think that two-part deal is kind of an explanation of faith, but it's not a simple definition as we're about to see. But it's beautiful, it's memorable, I think it's very profound, but it's very complex in so many ways. So what this passage does is it gives us the two-part explanation of faith, and then it gives us, uh, then it notes how it's commendable, and, and it relates it to our understanding of creation. And then he's going to go uh, to these examples of faith. So first, it, faith is this inner reality. It's something on the inside of you. It's an inner reality that affects your heart as well as your head. Faith is the hope of your heart, but it's also in your head. It's about your perspectives of reality. So let's take them in both part. In your heart, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's an argument for the truth of Christianity that says we all have desires for things promised in the gospel. Like we all have these desires. We long for things to be made right. We see the brokenness in the world and we long for things to be made right. But then when Christ returns, the gospel says that justice will reign. And it, also we have these desires to like end suffering in the world, right? We, we don't want to have any more suffering. But then the gospel says, okay, when Jesus returns, he's going to set up this new heavens, this new earth where there's no more crying, there's no more death. We all want to experience beauty and passion and love but the gospel says that in eternity, we're going to have be in the presence of God, marveling at what is the most marvelous. Those are our hopes. We have these hopes for these things. But my question is, where do we get those hopes? And why do we have those hopes? You see, the, the argument is that those hopes would only exist if there was this purposeful end to them. Like God wouldn't give us these desires, these hopes, if, if he didn't intend to fulfill them. That kind of becomes this argument for the truth of the gospel. Now, if, if you think that that is circular reason, and in many ways it is, th- think about the, the instinctive desires you have in this life. Like, there's a, there's a purposeful end to those desires, right? Like, husbands, let me help you, you can amen what I'm about to say. There's just 
beautiful things about your wife. Amen? Okay. So it's this instinctive thing. So her beauty has these purposeful ends for you, right? Like when you're just kind of being a grumpy bear and your wife walks in and smiles and you see that beautiful smile again, it just softens you, right? Like praise God for that beautiful smile and the, the instinctive thing that it does for you. There's things about your wife. You, you then spend your life in a job that maybe you hate to provide for her, right? I don't have a job that I hate, but maybe you do. But, you know, all those, those beautiful things about your life, those instinctive things that you have, they have a purposeful end. When I saw the Grand Tetons, Chris and I just instinctively, we were put on worship music. Like there was, a, there was a purpose behind the beauty of those mountains. that They led us to worship God. We need beauty, but beauty has purpose. Now, in a similar way, those desires for justice or comfort or adventure or love, they all point to a reality that is to come. So when we have taste of those things here, what the gospel is, is there's going to be a perfect fulfillment of those in the future. So when you get a a glorious taste of, of community and just great friendship here, what the gospel is, is, hey, you're going to have a, a perfect end to that. You're going to have perfect friendship and relationship in the future. So all these, these hopes that we have, they're like these arrows that just shoot out into the universe. But, but there's a purpose to them. There's a purposeful end. They, they land somewhere. He's given us a desire, and He promises to fulfill those. His fulfillment is going to be more marvelous than any world a comic book company or a studio can create. Like the the Marvel Cinematic Universe, that, that taps into different things in our hearts. But those things that it taps into, there's, there's taste of things there, but they're going to find their perfect end in the future. We hope for things. And further, we need to hope for things, right? Like, think about it. Humans are unique out of all the animals in that we need to hope for things. Like, we have to have hope. We, in fact, we can't exist. We can't live without hope. When people uh, no longer have hope, that's when really bad things come. It doesn't make sense that we would need hope, doesn't it? Like, why do we need hope? Yet, yet we need hope, and, and, it's, and it's absurd to think about if there's not a purpose for those things that we need. Like, the, um, the atheist materialists, they can't explain this reality. Like, literally, they have to make up existentialism to deal with this. Like, here's existentialism. You, you, you can't live without hope. You can't live without purpose. There is no real hope or purpose. Like there's no real God. There's no real, you know, mater, you know, immaterial realm. There's no real spirituality. None of that's all really out there. But you need it. You need to believe that. So the solution is make up something. Say that that's your hope. That's your purpose. And then live accordingly. That's authenticity. That's existentialism. But it totally dodges Why? It totally dodges why do you need hope? Why do you have to have purpose? It, doesn't, it, it totally dodges that and says, well, make up something, but we don't know why. We don't know why that's there. But what the gospel says is, is that God put that there for you. He has these things out there that we're supposed to hope for, and we're, and we're supposed to desire those things, and He promises to fulfill those things. So you see, faith is the firm, steady, assured confidence that those hopes will be realized. Faith is this, this heartfelt hope. Hope is heartfelt. It, it's, it's emotional. Faith, faith is an inner reality. Faith is linked to hope. Faith is an inner desire. 
However, even though faith is an inner desire, it's linked to hope, and faith is not this blind leap into the darkness. It's, it's not unreasonable. Like, I think faith is pitched that way many times. Like, there's no, like, like sure ground to it, and you just jump out into the darkness, believe whatever you want. And if that works for you, fine, but there's no ground to it. That, that's not Christian faith. There's all sorts of clues to the truthfulness of it. Like, it's reasonable to trust God. He's given us all these promises from the past. He's fulfilled those promises. He has more promises in the future. Based upon how he's fulfilled the promises in the past, we can then look ahead and believe these things in the future. It's not unreasonable. Now, it's faith. You've got to trust him for it. But there's clues all over the face. Assurance of things hoped for is reasonable. And faith is based upon clues that we know about the existence of God and we know about the spiritual realm. Faith is based upon promises that we have seen Him fulfill. So when God promises us something, even if it's hard to believe, even if it doesn't make sense, we can be assured of it based upon who He is and based upon the way He's fulfilled His promises in the past. Therefore, we can, um, we can trust Him even in hard things. It's reasonable because of His track record. But what do we hope for? So faith is the assurance of things hoped for, but what are we supposed to hope for? Faith is an objective idea. It's not faith in faith, okay? Faith is faith in something. There's an object, there's something that that faith is supposed to land upon. So Christian faith is a faith in Christ. We hope in Him. We trust in Him. Faith is a term that looks for an object to land upon, and it lands upon Christ. So Christian faith is not this vague faith in faith. That's cat poster platitudes. That doesn't help you. Christian faith is, is it lands on Christ. It's a particular faith. And it's a particular faith on Him. So faith is heartfelt assurance that Christ will be and do in the future what, his, what He has promised to be and do. Jesus is the object of our faith. Amen? Like that's where it's supposed to land. But we can't see the future, right? Like that's a difficulty about hope and faith and all these things. We can't see the future. We can't see what's out there. Paul says in Romans 8, 24, For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? This type of hope is in something that you can't see. Therefore, the, the way faith and hope, the way they work together, is that it's about things that we cannot see regarding our future. So faith is this assurance of things hoped for, but it's an assurance about your future. It's a belief that you have a good future. So if you have assurance of things hoped for, it means that your uh, understanding about your future, it's good. You have a good future with Him. And if you believe that you have a good future with Him, then you have faith. But if you stop believing that you have a good future, that, you know, then you're going to lose hope, you're, and then your life is not going to be marked by faith. Hope, or faith at its very core, is this belief that you have a good future with Him. And friends, that's what marked the saints of old. As we look at this long list, that's what marked them. They believed they had this good future. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't know where it was going to lead them. They didn't know how long it was going to take. They didn't know the, the different trials they were going to walk through. But they had this hope of a good future with the Lord, and that's what marked them. And it marked them to the degree that it shaped their present. Like Abraham's life in, that, in the present, in that present reality, it was shaped based upon what he believed about the future. He, he had assurance of the future, and then that shaped his present reality. So if you don't have hope, then you're quickly going to become depressed 
and crushed by the trials of this life. If you think there's no good in this and then that trial comes, it's just going to break you. But when you have faith, when you have hope, it, it, it's like this motor that just powers you through those trials. You know that this is not all that there is. Cancer is not all that there is. That divorce is not all that there is. God has good for you on the other side of it. That's how functionally faith uh, uh, practically meets you in the present. So in summary, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. We all need hope. That hope that you have and that you actually need, the fact that you need it, it then becomes a clue to the fact that, okay, God's created you this way. He's created you with this hole in your heart for this something, this good thing out there. And then He promises to fulfill it. All of that becomes this argument for the truth of it. And further, we've seen that hope or that faith is not this blind leap in the dark as it's pitched sometimes by people who don't have faith. It's based upon something solid, on something real. That the solid and real thing is Christ Himself. That's the object of our faith. It's not just faith and faith. It's faith in a particular thing upon Christ. And it's about our future. Faith at its very core is a hope and a good future with Him. Everything that He says that He is, everything that He says that He's done, it then gives us this hope to kind of power through the trials of today. So that you grieve, but you grieve with hope, right? You grieve in a way that your joy remains, right? Isn't that glorious? That's the type of faith that is commendable. That's the type of faith that saves. Faithful people believe good things about their future, and it serves as a fuel to their joy on hard days. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's the first part of it. The second part has to do with your head, your perceptions of things. In your head, faith is convictions about things not seen. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.18, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are, tran- are, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. See, see, we don't need faith in things that we can see. You don't need faith that I'm standing up here talking to you. I don't need faith that I can see you, okay? I can see you. It doesn't take great faith to believe that you exist. But what about the unseen things? Spiritually, believing in the unseen things, that's more important than belief in anything that you can see. Spiritually speaking, that's more important. And again, there is a world and there's a future that we can't see with physical eyes. The atheists and the materialists, they don't believe those things exist. But we believe those things exist. And there's all sorts of things that we know are true, even though we can't see them, right? I believe certain things in the past happened. I can't reproduce it in a beaker, but I believe it happened based on certain evidence. There's all sorts of, like, I, I <laughs> sounds goofy, I believe in love. Do you believe in love? I, I can't see that. I, I can't touch that. I can't measure that. But it's something that I can't see that I believe in. There's all sorts of these unseen things, these, these spiritual things that are out there that we believe in. And practically, believing in those things is important because our, our perceptions about those things, about those unseen things, that's what shapes our lives in the here and now. Do you believe in love or not believe in love? Well, that's a totally different life, isn't it? Like practically speaking, how your perceptions about those unseen things, that's what shapes your existence today. Ed Welch is a, is a, a biblical counselor, and he does a little exercise sometimes with his clients who uh, they're kind of maybe overwhelmed by a problem. You know, they have this problem that's just bearing down. All they can see is the problem. He'll tell them, okay, stop. I want you to close your eyes. Now I want you to picture your problem. Tell me about the unseen solutions. Now, if I'm his client, I'm probably just going to 
go back complaining about my problem. But in that case, he just says, no, stop. Just keep your eyes closed. Keep looking. What are the unseen things? I think that's a great exercise that highlights, listen, your perception is your reality. Your, Your perception of the unseen things, that then shapes your reality. The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce, he he explained that that physical eyesight gives you conviction about visible things, but faith gives you conviction about the invisible things. And to be clear, faith is a conviction. That's the word the author of Hebrews uses here. Faith is not speculation. Faith is this firm conviction. You can't see it with your physical eyes, but you know it's there. You stake your life upon it. You ever heard the chair illustration about faith? That faith is like you see a chair, and if you believe and have faith that that chair will hold you, then what do you do? You go sit in it, right? Faith functions that way. You have this conviction about something, and then you live your life accordingly. Now, maybe it will hold you, maybe it won't. Now, I mean, that chair right there, I, I actually have great convictions that I always sat in that chair would hold me. I've sat in that chair before, and it held me. None of these chairs have ever broken. Uh, these are actually great chairs and kind of expensive chairs, we found out. But those are great chairs. I believe they're going to hold, they, they would hold me. So I'd have confidence sitting in it. It's not a foolish thing. It's not a blind leap in the dark. Uh, but, but maybe it will, maybe it won't. But my conviction about it, then I sit in it, and then I, I, I demonstrate that I really have faith. It's the same thing here. Do you have conviction that that chair will hold you? Do you have convictions about these unseen things? Do you have conviction that he's going to be a good husband to you? Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But what is your conviction about it? That's what then shapes your reality, right? Therefore, faith is a conviction or it's an act of commitment. If you have conviction about something, your mind's uh, perception, it commits that reality. And this is a reality that cannot be seen. But faith is about our conviction concerning those unseen spiritual realities. Again, it's the assurance of things hoped for and then that, that marks the life of the saints of old. But in the same way, those saints of old, they had these convictions about this unseen world. They, they saw the world differently and then that changed how they lived. And that changed, that, that conviction that they had that led, that led to uh, a praiseworthy life. That was their commendation. Verse 2 says, For by it the people of old received their commendation. What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. And when you have that, God commends it. He says it's praiseworthy. That's what I want from you is what God calls us here. He says that's what it's supposed to be about. That's what's commendable. That's what's praiseworthy. That's the type of faith that says if you don't have that type of faith, you're lost. You don't have a vision for the future that shapes your present. You don't have a perception of unseen realities that aids your present reality. You're lost. Therefore, like the saints of old, faith is commendable. It's praiseworthy. And further, in verse 3, it shapes your understanding of creation, right? You don't understand creation, the meaning of creation, without faith without trusting Him for these things. Further, you don't know, okay, who we are. You don't know what's wrong with the world. You don't know the solutions to what's wrong. You don't know where you're going. Without faith, you can't gain true understanding. Faith is is the pathway to true understanding. Therefore, faith is not only about the hope of your heart, but it's the perception of your head. Faith is your conviction regarding the unseen world. Faith, Therefore, faith enables you to have this sense of truly seeing the unseen world. That's how you make sense of it all. All these things that are around you that you can't see, faith makes sense of it all. 
However, if, if uh, you're lost, you don't have that type of faith. By definition, that's what it means to be lost. You don't have that kind of trust in Him. Going back to that Billy Graham definition, faith simply means believing that something is true and then committing our lives to it. If you don't have that type of faith, you are lost. You don't have that hope of the future. You, you, you don't have the promise of those things. You don't understand reality. You're lost. What he's saying here is that we believe it's true and then we commit our lives to it. Okay, but what does faithfulness look like? Just in the interest of time, let me do this quickly. We're going to look at two examples, Abel and then Enoch. Verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Enoch in verse 5, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Both of these are these great examples of the type of faith we're supposed to have. From Abel, we see that faithfulness transforms our worship. You remember the story from Genesis 4? These two brothers, Cain and Abel, they both bring their sacrifice. They both come before the Lord to worship Him, but from very different hearts, right? Abel comes with this faithful heart. Abel has this this hope in the future. He, He is assured of this hope. This world is not all that there is. He has something better in the future. He he comes with this this firm conviction, this this renewed perception of reality about these unseen things. So his life is not all that he can see with his own physical eyes. His life includes what he can see with his spiritual eyes. And so that is a totally different sacrifice. He doesn't hold on to like his his very best animal, right? Because people who do that, like they only believe in this world. They don't believe in the good things to come. They don't believe in the unseen things. They don't have convictions about that. But that wasn't able. He brought his best out of faith that he had for all these things. But Cain's was very different. We don't know all the ins and outs of why and what he brought and all those things. But we do know that his sacrifice, his worship, was not based on faith. It wasn't about this hope that he had for the future. His hope was in the here and now. This was all that it was. His worship was deficient in some way because, his, because of his convictions about the seen world. He could just see this world, and it blinded him. He couldn't see the world that was to come, and so his sacrifice, his worship was deficient in some way. So genuine faith, it transforms how we worship. But secondly, from Enoch, faithfulness transforms our entire spirituality. You remember Enoch from Genesis 5? I mean, he's, he's fat. He's, he's just real quick in there. But here's what it says about Enoch in Genesis 5. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's amazing faith. He had the type of faith that it wasn't like, okay, I've got to do my devotional, I'm going to check, check it out my box, and then I'm going to go live however I want the rest of the day. This guy walked with God. Not just when he first got up, But all day long, he was with him, communing with God, just walking with him until he just walked up into heaven with him. How about that? That's pretty glorious faith. It totally transformed his entire spirituality. All his thoughts, all his emotions, all his actions, everything was transformed based upon his hope for the future and his convictions about these unseen things that he couldn't see. 
What does faithfulness look like? It's when we believe that it's true to the degree that it transforms our worship and it totally transforms our entire lives. This passage has kind of caused me to reflect on maybe great examples of faithfulness in my life. And some people are a flash in a pan, right? Like as I think about faithfulness, there's a long suffering to it, right? So if you're like me, the the people you think are really faithful, like they're they're older, right? They've been doing this for decades, not weeks. I've been this summer. I've been uh, reading a a biography about one of the great rock and roll stars of my generation, and and I I was just stunned last night reading that there was a moment. There was kind of a six month period where a Christian family just kind of took him in, loved on him, went to church with him, went to this little Baptist church, and he made a profession of faith and got baptized. I couldn't believe it because I because I knew what his life was like. But as they explained it, it was kind of this. This period where he was, you know, he was off drugs. He was trying to kind of be clean. But then he kind of abandoned it all and just kind of went back to the way that he was. Like if I told you it was, you would say, well, that guy wasn't a Christian. That's probably right. See, his life wasn't marked by faithfulness. It was just a flash in the pan, right? Faithfulness is there's, there's a decades to it, right? T- today's Father's Day. And last week was my dad's birthday. And so he, he's just kind of been on my mind. And hear me, my, my dad wasn't perfect. Nobody is. He's like you and me. But faithfulness certainly marked his life. There, there was a faithfulness about him. You see, he had a genuine hope that the Lord was going to bring a good future to him. He had a hope in the Lord. And that shaped his present reality. Like, he did life differently based upon what he hoped for in the future. That was the type of faith that he had. It gave him great peace in this life. When he saw dark things and wicked things, it was like this motor that just kind of drove him through those things. They didn't crush him. And friends, on his deathbed, he had peace, real peace. We didn't. I mean, we were, you know, we were just, you know, flipping out. But he had this great peace. He knew where he was going. He knew he had a good future. This hope warmed his heart. He also had real convictions about the unseen spiritual world. And those real convictions about the unseen world, it translated on how he viewed the physical world here. Like he did life differently as a result of it. Like he hoped in Christ. He believed certain things about Christ. He had real convictions about it. He believed that Jesus really got up on a cross, really died for his sins. And if he were to really believe in him, then he was going to heaven. And those beliefs, those convictions about the unseen spiritual world, that changed how he lived life here. Like, listen, no one's going to write a book about him. He was, in many ways, an ordinary man. Our family is going to remember him. Other, his friends will remember him. But he was like Abel. He was like Enoch in the, in the fact that his greatest attribute was faithfulness. He had these hopes in the world that it was to come. He had these firm convictions about things that he couldn't see. And that totally transformed his worship. It totally transformed his entire life. Like, he gave generously to his church and to his community. Because he knew this world is not all there. I don't have to cling tightly to all these things. He had the freedom to be generous. He, he was generous with his time. He, his faithfulness, it led him to work the right way. Like he gave his best as he was working to the Lord. He was ethical. He was kind. But only he trusted the Lord for the results. So through the highs and through the lows, you know, there was just a steadiness that he was able to have because his hope was in something uh, outside of this world, not this world, the unseen world. His faithfulness led him to be a good husband and a good father. Dads, that type of faithfulness isn't glamorous, right? 
Like your coworkers might think you're boring because of that type of faithfulness, okay? It's not glamorous. Maybe your teenagers are going to tease you for your dad bod and those 1990s styles that you're still kind of holding on to, okay? Being a dad is maybe boring. But dad's faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. And as more people reject the faith and their lives are marked by unfaithfulness, we just need more and more glorious examples of genuine faithfulness. Your faithfulness matters. I read some interesting Father's Day statistics this week by a a congressman from Florida. He says that faithful fathers are the key indicator of a child's economic prosperity, academic performance, and social mobility. A faithful father is the key to that. He then pointed all this U.S. Census data that showed that 25% of children are growing up without a faithful father. And then his data says that 85% of teens with behavior problems, they didn't have faithful fathers. 70% of adolescent patients in drug and alcohol treatment centers, they don't have faithful fathers. Brothers, being a boring, faithful husband, father, churchman, an employee, that's what we need from you. It's not glamorous. I can't think of a TV show that like, you know, that, that, every TV show that I can think of, like every TV dad, like he's kind of the foolish comic relief, right? That's what the world, that, that's how the world is pitching fatherhood. But let me tell you, the math says something different. The math says that the ones you love the most, for them to flourish, they need you to be faithful. Faithfulness is this glorious attribute that God is calling you to. It's boring. It's day in and day out. It's long-suffering. But it's what the ones who need you the most need from you the most. Friends, Hebrews 11 is this great rally cry to be faithful. Have faith in the Lord. Hope in Jesus for your future. To the degree that it brings you joy today. Hold firm convictions about that unseen world to the degree that it shapes your entire life in your head and in your heart. Have assurance and conviction. But never forget the the good news of Enoch. Enoch's faith came from walking with God. You want to know how to have faith? You walk with God. Friends, He's with you. He's for you. When you struggle to have faith, He's with you and He's for you. He's there to help you. He's walking with you. He's the giver of faith. He calls you to have faith, and then He's there to give it to you. Isn't that glorious? Walk with Him. He's there to help you in your walk. Do you trust Him? Turn from hope and anything else. Turn to convictions about Him above everything else. And believe that He is true. In your heart and in your head, have assurance and conviction. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage, this really profound passage about the nature of faith and the beginning of these examples of faith. Lord, I thank you for this call. I thank you that we know what you want from us. We don't have to create an ethic. We don't have to conjure up a spirituality. We know what you want from us. You want us to trust you, to have faith in you. You want us to have uh, assurance of hope in you. You want us to have conviction about these spiritual things that we can't see. 
You want us to trust you. May we be a people that is marked by faithfulness. And Lord, I pray for this room that if this passage is hitting someone here who doesn't have that type of faith, who their trust hasn't landed on you yet, I pray, Father, that they wouldn't waste this moment, that they wouldn't walk out of this room until they confess faith in you. In Jesus' name we'll pray. Thank <laughs> you.